1: What do you want to do?
2: I want want to listen about Bigfoots.
1: You want to listen to Sasquatch? No! No. What's the name of that show?
2: I don't know. Sasquatch? No! Bigfoots! Bigfoots, Daddy!
1: What about Sasquatch?
2: (laughs) No! What
1: about Yowie? No! What sound does a Bigfoot make?
2: I don't know. Just hear it. Just hear it. Daddy, push the button.
1: What sound? What sound does a Bigfoot make?
2: Oh, I don't know. Do it. No. Push the button, honey. Really? I'm serious. Serious, Daddy. (laughs) It's
3: time for our journey to begin.
2: You walk through our forests, yet you remain a mystery. What are you? Why do you hide? In the land we call Wilderness, There lives a creature that has become one with legend. At the moment, it's about to have an unpleasant encounter with the self-styled masters of the wilderness, Man.
1: Welcome to OK Talk. I'm Clinton. Tonight I'm going to share with you part one of an extensive and ongoing conversation that I've been having with author and researcher William Jevning. You may have heard him on a podcast or two. I want to go ahead and say the last few weeks have been kind of a blur. Matt and I have both been traveling, working on the show, and we're about, we're really close to dropping our first episode of October, but I wanted to make sure that the back catalog didn't get too full. Um, We're about to... Release an episode about the Hotel Galvez and the haunted city known as Galveston. But I wanted to go ahead and let you know now that the hotel has packages for October that are on sale. If you're in Texas and want to do some haunted traveling, Uh, we've got some more information on that coming up shortly. When I uh, first decided that I wanted to talk to someone about the creature commonly referred to as Bigfoot, my guest tonight was at the top of my list, and I was kind of blown away by how authentic and kind and giving of his time that William Jevning is and has been and continues to be. And like I said, this is just a small, small portion of a conversation that we've been having throughout the summer. But since we're in production on a few other episodes of the show, I figured that there would be no better time than now to let you hear my conversation with William. Like I said, Will's an author. Today, he has three books that are in print. Notes from the Field, Tracking North America's Sasquatch, Haunted Valley, and In Search of the Unknown. Jevning has also appeared on numerous podcasts, co-hosting one that became kind of popular. (laughs) He's done a lot of broadcast radio shows like Darkness Radio, the television show America's Book of Secrets, The Mystery of Bigfoot. Currently, Will is working on several new book manuscripts and conducting field research, in California, Oregon, and Washington. And uh, I can go ahead and say that uh, he's expanding into the wilds of Canada. I reached William Jevning at his home late one night. So, William Jevning. Good gravy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also kind of a big guy, and I'm in a studio that midgets run most of the time. <laughs> Things a little disproportionate, are they? Oh my goodness! Being six five is kind of tough in this business. I guess I don't know. Normally, it wouldn't be that big of an issue. So, Will, let me ask you: what have you what have you been doing since you um, since the summer started? Since you last left us. I feel like uh, I got so used to hearing you every week, multiple times a week, and then uh, you left the Sasquatch Chronicles. And now I feel like I, I think I told you that I feel like there's been like a void in my life because I haven't heard your uh, reassuring voice. So what's been going on with you in 2015?
4: Well, I, I dove back into field work and um, I went back to working on, I actually had three manuscripts, that I have in mind that I want to, I want to get published. But during working on those, uh, another one, a much better one. You know, when you're working on writing projects or any kind of creative venture, you know, sometimes during the course of things, something will pop in your head that's that just demands to be done right now. So um, that's what happened. I, I I've got one that I'm working very hard on that I'm hoping will be completed by the end of summer. I think it will be.
1: Is most of your field work primarily there in Washington?
4: Well, I'm actually in Northern California, uh, but I, I work the entire west
1: coast. Oh, okay. I remember seeing uh your blog post that you were about to get started. So do you have uh different areas that you work or do you respond to reports and sightings and then go to an area and investigate? How do you generally how I've, do you generally I've, do it?
4: I, I've got well I've got places all up and down the west coast areas. Uh, that I like to work. Some of the favorite ones are here in Northern California. Um, one of them that I've called a number of times on different shows, Area Number Four. That's that's how I refer to it because I don't want a bunch of people running there, right, all over it. But it's one of the, it's one of the most productive areas. And um, <clears throat> so, about two months ago, when I started going, you know, getting in, this season kicked off. Um, a witness contacted me. Lives about sixty miles north of me. And it was an older account, or series of accounts, so I I went up there and met with him, and he wanted to take me out and show me the areas where he had these encounters. So uh, thinking that it was a cold area, I went ahead and went with him, and we looked, and I just kind of made notes about things that he said he saw and experienced. And as we were looking, about midday, we started finding things, and it turned out to be not such a cold area. Uh, even, even to the point of, um, of some extremely fresh finger marks in some clay near a small creek. Uh, it was very interesting. They, they were only a few hours old, so uh, that was interesting to find. And I'd seen things like that before, so I knew what they were.
1: Right. You now, you've been doing this, and I don't like to date anyone because I certainly don't like to tell anyone how long I've been <laughs> in radio. <laughs> I'm an old guy. It's okay. <laughs> it makes me feel really old, and then I like trying to tell people, "Well, I got started really young. Well, you got started really young in in I this in 1972, and you had an encounter that you have you've described to uh, to many people. Um, but if you want to brush up on, you know, for the people that are listening to this and hearing you for the first time. Let's talk about that a little bit and the way that uh, that kind of propelled you into this field.
4: Sure. Well, the first time that we saw anything about this, it was just footprints, but um, it was during, you know, middle of December 1972. A friend had come over to spend the weekend and it snowed, so it was kind of, you know, kind of boring. So we decided to go over to another of our friends' house about a mile from my home uh, to see, you know, what we could figure out to do for the day and um, we couldn't find the trail through the timber because of the snow, so I said, well, let's walk down the road, and we'll catch the railroad line, it, you know, runs through the forest over there, and it goes right in front of our friend John's house. So we, we took off down the road, and we hit the tracks, and if you picture this line, uh, this the topography there, uh, as we were walking along, the tracks ran along the side of this hill, and to our left was the up part of the hill, and it ran downwards from our left to our right, and the previous summer they brought a bulldozer in and made rough roads on either side of the tracks for fire access, so everything was covered with snow except for the two rails, and as we walked along, we got about halfway to uh, John's house, and we saw something red between the rails ahead of us, and so we got up there, and here's this uh, small amount of intestines, probably uh, you know, about the size of what would come from a small or a medium-sized dog or a coyote, and there were no footprints around it. And we couldn't figure out how they got there. Well, there was, you know, what, it was too much for any kind of a, a hawk or anything to have dropped, and um, so it was sort of puzzling. And we couldn't see anything, of course, the way we came or, or down below the, on the fire access road below us. So I told my friend Mark to walk on ahead, and I'd climb the hill to the left to see if there was anything up there. And as soon as I crested the the road up there, there were footprints everywhere. So I hollered for him to come up there, and I, I climbed up, and I kind of scratching my head. Here are these big, what look like human tracks that are barefoot, but they're about a foot and a half long. And there were dozens of them everywhere. And we're both standing there with our mouths hanging open. Now, you know, in those days, the word Bigfoot really wasn't as widely disseminated as it is today, so we hadn't heard that word before. And it kind of struck me all of a sudden. You you could see where something big had sat down on the edge of this um, fire access road overhanging the tracks. And right below was where these intestines were. And it was about 17 degrees that morning. And I said, Mark, whatever did that, those guts aren't frozen. Whatever did that's really close by here. And then it scared us, so we took off running. And if we get to John's house, we're banging on the door really hard and, and, you know, yelling to let us in. And and he had... uh, a couple of brothers and sisters, so there were all these kids, you know, and just pandemonium in their house. And his dad come walking out from a back room, and he says, boys, boys, settle down, what's going on? So we told him. And he grabbed a forty-five and a camera, and he says, take me back there and show me what you found. So all of us kids and, and his dad went back there, and he's taking all these pictures, not saying anything, and then he tells us what little he knows. He must have seen something on television, I'm guessing. Um, and, of course, you know, 14... You know, 14-year-old boys are are pretty much wound out by monsters anyway. So uh, back to something real, being out there really grabbed our imaginations. And we went looking every weekend after that and didn't see a thing. So, you know, kids that age, you kind of get bored after a while Mm -hmm. if you don't get some results from something. So we're off to doing other things. And about two years later, this would have been the fall of 1974, uh, one evening right at dusk. We had to tie my dog up at night because he liked to roam neighboring farms and my parents didn't want him to get in any trouble or shot. So uh, he was going just crazy, kind of barking um, out towards the nearest tree line to the house. And I figured there was, you know, some animal, raccoon, skunk or something. They were always coming in the yard uh, after my sister's cat's food and, th- and his the dog's food. So my dad said they might have rabies, to shoot them. Don't let them come in the yard. So I went in the house. I grabbed one of my twenty twos, a couple of bullets, and I go grab the dog and I let him go. And I say, "Go get him!" And he made a beeline straight for the tree line. And I'm behind him. You know, as quick as I can get behind him, and I get about fifty to a hundred feet from him, and he and he gets to the tree line and he froze. And usually he would just plunge right in and go after whatever was there. But he froze, and his ears were up, and he was just standing real rigid, silent. And as I approached him, he wheeled around and, and just come tearing past me and ran back to the house. And I'm looking at him thinking, what the heck is he doing? I've never seen a dog run from anything. And he gets up to the porch, and he, and he sits down, there and he, I could see him shivering. I thought, what in the world? So I, I walk up to where he was standing, and I could hear something moving inside the tree line. So I chambered around, and I... I there were some real low-hanging limbs you couldn't really see in there um and there was a big maple tree great big one in there and of course leaves are off the trees at this time but there were fir trees on the outside so i i pushed with my one arm you know through the limbs into this clearing where this big maple tree was and when i got in there uh less than 15 feet in front of me is this massive thing standing there and it's moving the leaves with its right foot that's the noise i heard and the only thing that went through my mind was, you know, besides, oh, my God, was, you know, what in the world is this? And, you know, of course, a million things go through your mind in those just seconds. And and then the thought struck me, oh, that must be what made the footprints we found. And then I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do now? I've got a 22, and this thing is, is at least two feet taller than me, so it was around eight foot high. And and at least 800 pounds. It was massive. And when it saw me, it stopped moving and just kind of stared at me. And it was, I've had people ask me, you know, everybody wants to know details of the face. I could see the face, but not real great because um, it was at dusk and it was in, in a tree line. Anybody knows that kind of a setting. You know, you get mixtures of light and dark. So, there were parts of it I could see very clear, like the, the foot and then the feet and toes and the hair and things like that. I could see its eyes, but there was hair covering most of the face, so detail wasn't real great as far as that goes. I mean, when I when I saw the Patterson film for the first time, I thought, that's pretty close to what I saw. It looked, looked a great deal like that. So, as I'm standing here trying to figure out, you know, in milliseconds, what's going on and what do I do, I... Um, I hear a noise behind me. So I turn my head slightly, still keeping an eye on this thing, and here comes another one walking around from my right around, and it walks over and stands next to the first one, and it's probably a head shorter and you know a couple hundred pounds lighter. And I decided... Oh, let me back up a little bit. I forgot what, I, what made that move was I, I thought, well, I'll shoot in the air just to see because my, my gun was too small to hurt, any, hurt this thing. So I thought maybe I'd scare it off, so I shot in the air, and that's when I heard the noise behind me and this second one come walking around. So then I decided to take off running like the dog did, and um, everybody made fun of us the first time when we found the footprint. So I didn't tell my parents or any any family members, what i had seen so i called my friend john told him and we all decided to meet at my house before first light the next morning with our hunting rifles and we track them and and the tracks were very clear it frosted heavy that night so we were able to follow the tracks for quite a long ways until uh, you know warmed up enough by the sun and and we lost the trail but i don't know what we thought we were going to do if we would have caught up with them anyway but um and then of course that incident, we didn't talk about it, except amongst ourselves very quietly. And another of our friends overheard John and I talking about it on the school bus one afternoon. And um, he was kind of an introverted guy, didn't talk or have many friends or, or talk to many people. So he asked me if he could interview me about what happened. And I thought, well, okay, it's not going to go anywhere, so he won't say anything. And later, the following summer, 1975, and, and he'd given me John Green's books in the meantime. And I was floored to learn that there was so much information about the subject at that time. And um, in the middle of that summer, one afternoon, one of my sisters said, there's a couple of men here to see you. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't know any men except my uncles or dad's friends. So I walk out to the back of the house and here's Rene DeHinden. And uh, he questioned me about what I'd seen apparently my other friend Jim had written to green and um they were in Puyallup at the time just north of where I lived and uh after talking to the in a while he invited me to he and green's camp so that's how I met them and uh you know things
1: went from there amazing I mean those are two heavyweights in the uh in the Bigfoot research pantheon you know they were
4: Subject. If it wouldn't have been for Renee Hinden, no one would have ever taken an interest in, in the subject at all.
1: So here you are, and you're at this time now. You're 16.
4: I was I was 16. I was 17 when I met them. Okay, I was 17.
1: And um and so they had a camp. Were, were they now early on? Did they pretty much do most of their research together, the two of them?
4: They did until it would have been right around, I think, 1970 or 71, when they started having a falling out. And, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that Rene took a lot of the pictures from Northern California of the tracks and things that were found, and Green used them without Rene really knowing or giving permission or even or being offered to be paid for them. And that's sort, of, that's sort of what caused the rift between them. In fact, the camp that I went to was the last time they went to the field together ever. Wow. And they didn't even talk to each other very much during that trip. Really? Yeah, they, they'd they both gone there separately uh, because it was it was a big event, you know, the Puyallup Screamer events and things that were going on at
1: that time. Yeah, because I guess I didn't really know about Renee Hinden until much later in life. I actually didn't get a hold of a John Green book until much later either, but, uh, you know, I'd see him on various TV things or mentioned, you know, and doing modicum amount of research but i didn't really get to figure out the character that was renee until much later and uh i guess did we just recently like have an anniversary of his death or yeah in april right okay so in april when uh a bunch of people you know i've put some stuff up online and i was able to go back and i watched a i think uh seems like that was like a Good Morning America special or something that they did with he and his wife. Um, and it, it seemed like he was pretty new to the country even.
4: Yeah. Oh, that was the old one probably from, geez, I don't know what year that was, late 50s, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was early. And I, I say Good Morning America, and now this could have been like a, a mashup of every TV appearance that sure. he was in, but um, I remember seeing... and because his uh his wife you know really broke in english um yeah. and uh and I thought that was just amazing that he was so dedicated to it that you know
4: he was a unique personality I mean you know it goes back to when he he emigrated to Canada and and I, I think it was around nineteen fifty six that he told me he was sitting with this farmer that he worked for in Eastern Canada one morning, and they were having their Neal and um, they heard this, they had the radio on, and he said there was this uh, news story about some kind of a Himalayan search for the Yeti. And Renee made the comment. He says, wow, wouldn't that be interesting to be involved in that? And the farmer just kind of nonchalantly told him, he says, well, you don't have to go clear over there. They have those things out in British Columbia. <laughs> so <laughs> the following year, Renee packs up and he moves to British Columbia. Now, at that time, nobody was looking into this topic whatsoever. Right. Now, there have been sporadic news articles for, geez, clear back to about 1811, and of course, Spanish missionaries a hundred years before that were collecting information from local Indians, but it was never any big interest in it. De Hinden wanted to know if there was really something to it or not, so he decided to start digging into it. He went to libraries to see what was available, talked to local people. And he determined that there really was enough to warrant a serious search of this. So when there was a centennial celebration in British Columbia and in Harrison Hot Springs, they had about five hundred dollars um, to go to some sort of a, you know, promotional thing for the town. And Renee went, and of course John Green was the newspaper editor there at the time. And uh, Renee barges in, and both of them separately, you know, we had a good laugh about. You know the, the their first encounter together, where Renee, you know, barges into Green's office and literally is banging his fists on Green's desk, saying, "What are you going to do about this?" <laughs> 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 so, you know, Green thought the whole thing, you know, was just a big joke. It was like everybody else; it was nothing serious to look into. But Renee convinced him that they really there really was enough to warrant a serious investigation. So that's how they got their start. So it was really DeHinden's you know, stubbornness that got everybody started looking at this.
1: Wow. And so basically since, you know, the early seventies, mid seventies, well, yeah, mid seventies, you've been, you've kind of been hot on the trail. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that there hasn't been much, this stuff kind of gets in your blood, you know, and especially with someone like you who've had such a vivid encounter, um, I would imagine that it pretty much, it may not dominate your life, but it's always been kind of what you've been into. It's...
4: Yeah. Well, you know, to begin with, especially, I don't know that I would have gone as far had I not met Green and DeHinden at that particular time in my life, because having seen the books and I was a little bit starstruck, you know, I recognized DeHinden immediately when he come walking up to our back porch and uh, and then before they both left, they both asked me to keep in touch with them. They wanted me to help them with their work. And I, and I thought, you know, when, when, when you're 17 and somebody that's world famous tells you that, uh, it, it's a big impact on you. So I spent quite a few years after that. Um, and, of course, I was in the military after high school. But, you know, when I had the opportunity to, I would go and uh, check up on stories and things like that in my area of Puget Sound. And uh, forward all that information to those guys. Uh, and but what really got me, I, I think their work sort of atrophied after a while. And um, so I, I would send send Green things, in particular Green, because I, I felt because he was an author that he was doing more with it. Renee would be in the field, but to me it seemed like Green was collecting the files. He was you know cataloging all, cataloging all the material. So at the time I was thinking that he was the guy to send things to. Yeah but there was almost no follow-up. You know, I'd send him pictures of footprints, and he'd say, well, yeah, that's great, great footprints. End of story. We took him out after we had an encounter in 1976 outside of Fort Lewis, and um, where we were surrounded by four of them one night and screaming and all kinds of stuff. One guy was even dragged partway out of the tent, Um, and we took Green out there two weeks later, and immediately when we got out of his van, And we met the family who had the ranch, and these things started screaming. And Green had to return to British Columbia for whatever reason, he said at the time. And years later, he would tell me, you know, I'm still kicking myself for not taking a recorder that night. So I got a little bit disillusioned with him. And, uh, and of course, Renee and I were closer, but... uh, I started branching off on my own, and and Rene encouraged that. You know, he told me once, he says, you know, nobody's really making any forward movement in this subject because what they were doing in those days was not only establishing the topic of research, but it was more of a fact-finding mission to determine what was going on out there, all the basic stuff. And everybody kept repeating that. And he told me, he says, I want you to take what we did as a foundation and build on that. So that's what I've been doing since then.
1: Fast forward a decade or so, would you uh would you meet people that were into the subject as well, kind of get yourself a little crew together? How did you manage to continue the research and further it with uh with others? I know I've heard you talk about having, you know, other people that were in your research team or, you know, right. that, you, that you did so, field work with?
4: After, after they left, back and it goes back to 75, um, after they went back to British Columbia, I, I talked to some of my buddies. I had a group of about 10 friends. You know, we all hung out and did things together. Um, I said, you know, these guys want us to help them. I think we should really dig into this. So we kind of all took it serious and started doing it you know, on every available weekend or during the summer. And, um, I, I created what I called at the time, the, uh, Pierce County Sasquatch investigation team. And, and then of course, after I got out of the military years later and moved to Vancouver, Washington, I reconstituted the organization. And, and while I was in the service, I, when I was home, I was able to, you know, go up and, and do field work and talk to people because they were, they were friends, family friends and, and such who would hear things, and they would put me onto these witnesses. So I was still collecting stuff as I could. But after I got out, I, I reconstituted um, the organization, and that got kicked off. My girlfriend at the time, she says um, I, we were both new to Vancouver and, and kind of starting a new life there. So. We were sitting, talking one evening. She says, it's really nice. You spend a lot of time, so much time with me and, and the kids. You know, that's really great. She says, but you must have a hobby that you want to do yourself. And I, I kind of chuckled. I said, well, I said, actually, I do. So I, I thought, well, there's no way to dance around the topic either. You know, a person's going to accept it or they don't. You just tell it straightforward. And I, right. I got up from Hinden, so because he had no, no social filters at all. He would just tell you what was on his mind exactly as it, what he was thinking it. So I told her, and she was excited. She says, "You know, you should, um, you should start working this area." So I, I wrote to Green and to Hinden both, and I told them where I was at, and they were both real excited. Hinden says, "That's great." He said, "There's been no competent uh, Sasquatch hunter, and that's what we called ourselves originally—was Sasquatch hunters, not researchers." Mm-hmm. Um, there's been nobody there since Roger Patterson. So he said, it's, "He says you're really good in the field." He says, "That's." That's, a, that's great that you're there. It's a great area for you to work. So I thought, well, I don't really know this area, so I made a flyer up, and I worked with a guy that, uh, and it's kind of funny thinking about it. Back in those days, there weren't that many, this is in the mid-'80s, there weren't that many copying machines around.
2: Right. Uh, right. Like
4: they, so I worked with a guy whose father owned a business. They had a copier. So, you know, I come over one afternoon with a case, or half half case of beer, and we sit around and, and had beer and, and bs and made about, you know however many hundred copies of this flyer and it was just asking people if they had seen anything like this and my contact information and uh my girlfriend's son and a friend of his rode around on their bikes around town and and put them under the windshield wipers of cars so it happened that one of them uh, was a deputy sheriff's car and he took it in and was about to throw it away when one of the local newspaper editors came in and, and he says well here you might like this so the editor contacted me and, and did a big three-page article uh, in the Columbia River Gorge, one of the papers there, and uh, and that started attracting people to what I was doing. Nobody had done anything, like I said, since Roger Patterson had been there in the late 60s. So um, I rebuilt the organization calling it the Pacific Coast Sasquatch Investigation Team and and. Uh, one of our friends worked for the state as a uh, an advocate for handicapped children right out of the governor's office, so she was pretty knowledgeable about, you know, how to set up an organization with the legalities and everything, and, and we made it a non-profit corporation, um, you know, to show people we weren't out to make a buck. We were trying to be as legit as possible, and um, we ended up forming a board of directors. We had about 100 members, so... Um, with leads in the area, with different newspaper articles that would come out on us that um, that brought information in
1: that is incredible that is incredible. I mean I don't think I've ever heard that at least that little part of your tale and that's that's something see i it's funny because something that i've been interested in since I was young, but life gets in the way college work family absolutely and you kind of come in and out of it you know and uh and there does seem to be at least in my own uh consciousness you know like gaps in time when i don't remember anything about you know the the topic Mm -hmm. i I really i just have a lot of respect for someone who uh, has put in so many years and put your nose to the grindstone and then to get an organization built up, which now, you know, you hear these like they're, you know, I mean, everybody's got an organization, you know, exactly. (laughs) And And, we were probably one of the very first. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine that's, that's what I think is so cool about it is that it obviously it seems like, I mean, you are a trailblazer in the field, but that's a really, really cool thing to have something going in such a, you know, renowned area. So let me ask you this, because this is, uh, I've got a few different wild theories, but where do you think, what do you think the state of the species is right now in terms of population? I feel like there had to have been a time when we basically drove these things nearly to the brink.
4: Right, exactly. And and a lot of uh, my Native American friends years ago, used to tell me and, and my thinking back then was I, I'm always trying to figure out why they do things right everybody goes out looking for tracks and you know what I call the trophy hunters mm-hmm. find something they hold up and say I'm an expert because I have this right it, you, who cares they don't they don't think about well what what's the behavioral aspects of that line of tracks what were they doing uh, a tracker friend of mine up in British Columbia said something to me a couple of weeks ago that really gave me a different perspective. He says, you know, with footprints of tracking any animals, he says you can build a behavioral profile. And I thought, now that's a great way to say that. You want to know what something is doing. You know, I don't care about just having the, the, the physical aspects. I want to know what they're doing. Right. So I think I got off on a tangent there.
1: No, 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 I'm, I'm feeling you.
4: So behaviorally, it's a big thing. Um, you know, if you want to learn about any kind of a creature, you better know what they're doing. You know, I, I could care less about, you know, because over the years you hear, you've hear you heard different aspects come out like And I, I used the example with somebody yesterday. We were talking, and I said, you know, everybody takes a piece of this, and they think automatically they've got the Holy Grail. And I, And the example I used was the thing about dermal ridges, I think, back in the 90s. And I thought, okay, you know, I've got I've got quite a few photographs that people have sent me of hand marks, very clear ones, you know, showing dermal ridges, things like that. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. It doesn't prove anything. Uh, but back to the status of the of the population. Uh, nobody really has any clear figures on population, although. Um, what, I, what I, I'm sure is happening, because there are more sightings now than there have been for, for a number of years in the past, is kind of goes back to logging. And yeah, yeah. Logging is such a big detrimental issue. Well, it's really not. It kind of serves the same function as forest fires, if you look at it in terms of that, because there's a renewal mm-hmm. of, uh, well, you know, the old-growth canopies block out sunlight, so it's very limited plant growth in those regions. And it kind of keeps populations of wildlife down because there's only so much food to go around. With these areas that are clear-cut, well, it takes quite a while for the timber to grow back. So you get all these leafy plants. And I know in Washington, for instance, I, I looked it up about the deer population. They call it an infestation. There's so many deer. That's a direct result of all this plant growth. Well, if there's all these prey animals then nature's going to respond by making more predatory animals. So if you follow the train of thought, the Sasquatch is a predatory animal, so uh, their numbers are going to increase exponentially
1: as well. See, that's really interesting, because I wondered if, uh, I mean, obviously the idea of clear-cutting, wiping out large amounts of what you would assume to be habitat would be detrimental, but then at the same time, we do planned burns, controlled burns of forest. While it may have a negative effect right then, long term it it's very beneficial. It's very beneficial. And I heard I heard a stat, or um, you know, at least a theory about Ohio and uh, the amount of um, clear cutting and logging that had gone on in Ohio, and that uh, since that time, and let's say this was late eighties, early nineties that the state had gone from like twelve percent forest to now it's up to sixty. Wow. I may be off like, you know, five or ten percent either way there. But it was literally that that drastic of a of a jump. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at sighting reports, it almost seems like it correlates with that. I would imagine that if there was a lot of clear cutting going on, now maybe we're not directly affecting the species in terms of like its numbers but maybe just pushing them into the further reaches i guess
4: well these guys are going to move accordingly anyway i mean their ranges are a minimum of 500 square miles for a single group now the ranges overlap uh so you know and they're gonna they're gonna fluctuate their movements throughout a range accordingly you know and it's Based on food sources and things like that, so you know if an area is, is cut, they're just going to adjust accordingly you know to another part of that range, and they don't stay in one spot anyway they're always throughout a year uh, yearly cycle they move throughout the ranges so and that goes back to also why they're so difficult to catch up with it 's because of how they move through the ranges and one of the books I'm producing now uh, I'm outlining that so people understand with diagrams and everything how they move. And, and it's not the same pattern. You know, you hear people talk about, oh, they, they go back to the same place the same time of year and, and they're there every year. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes those are different foraging areas as they move through their ranges.
1: Yeah, and that's probably dependent on the actual habitat, you know, and the surrounding area. I mean, if they have different places to go.
4: Right. And they'll, and they'll move those, let's say, in, in June. You know, they're in this one particular area every year. It could be, and it's kind of hard to describe this, it's better with a diagram. You know, they might be in one spot one year, they might be five miles away, but it's still within the same foraging route in that particular part of the range for that time of year. So they might change, you know, each year as they come through, and they may not use the same spot for 20 years or more.
1: Yeah, okay. I see what you're saying.
4: So they'd be very difficult for people to go out and actually find them. And I I spent from... 1987 through 98 in the area south of Mount St. Helens tracking one particular group every year. I could get within a 30-day time window of where they were going to be in their range. And and that's over 15,000 hours worth of work during those years. So and that's as close as I got. They're very difficult to catch up with. And and if they alter that pattern, then that's that's being unaffected by people or, you know, food sources, things like that, that would be factors in, in any kind of a shift. So I was pretty lucky with that. Now, of course, since then, that range has changed because they've done a lot of building from the uh, Columbia River Gorge north. So I don't really know what the movements are of those groups right now.
1: Wow. So w- what would you estimate the size of a, of a group to be?
4: Typically four to six, but they can be larger.
1: I was watching this study about a group of Western lowland gorillas in this area in Africa, and this was probably produced, say, 10 years ago in the special. They're in this, uh, you know, they're in this certain area in Africa, and this just absolutely dropped me because uh, these people, th- th- this was, they were some of the first people to get really close to this uh, particular group. And they said that while originally that they thought that maybe there was fewer than 10,000 gorillas in this certain area in Africa, which is still a lot, but that that was about what they estimated their numbers to be. Then this group goes through and they start to count nest and they uh, estimated that there were more than a hundred thousand in this area, which immediately doubled the war- the known world population. Right. And I mean, we're talking about huge male silverbacks with, you know, a harem of females. We're talking about, you know, younger males who are vying for their own group mm-hmm. and they're all in this area. This is uh this is in the region in Africa where you know what we would know the people there is the pygmies but they're really just <laughs> you know when I heard that term I was like wow I hadn't heard that term in a while but
4: it's not even that large a region
1: no 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 it's not and and the the fact that these things were able to I, I did a double take when they used those terms because I think that it shows how elusive they are how good they are at hiding and really how. Maybe humans don't understand what dense old growth forest can really conceal from us. And the fact that while we like to think that we know everything and that we're, you know, in this information age, the number of people who actually walk 200 yards into the forest, let alone two miles into the forest, is pretty low.
4: It is. Things like, and it's a good point. Um, back in 1992, we had a big event we did at Mount St. Helens, and Renee was our guest speaker, and we had a couple thousand people came, and it was a it was a uh, we called it the second annual Bigfoot barbecue and potluck, and it was a huge success. <laughs> Love that, and uh, and it was sort of a, an impromptu thing that we did the year before I did, and uh, that sort of spurred the idea. So it's what we created up there. And anyway, at, during that time, I was we were I was talking with a group of people and uh, had a map laid out, and we were talking about where things had been seen. And this gentleman walks up and he says, Ah, hell, I'm, I'm from that area. I've lived up there 30 years. I know every inch of that area. And I said, really, show me with your finger on this map how, w- how you know that area. Where have you been on this area? Well, he drew his finger on all the roads. And I said, well, have you been to this area between these roads, which was maybe a mile from one section to the other? No. Have you been over here? No. Have you been over there? And then pretty soon he says geez i guess i really don't know that area (laughs) (laughs) right from the roads well you know depending on the time of year you know in the winter time you might be able to see 50 to 100 feet off to your left or right going down a logging road in the summertime 10 or 20 feet and if you're driving alone are you really looking off to the left or right and is a sasquatch even going to be that close to the road right so the chances it's like playing the lottery um, you know, good luck seeing something under those circumstances.
1: It really is. It really is needle in a haystack kind of thing.
4: And if you're in a 500 square mile area and you've got four individuals, what are the chances?
1: Right. And that's why I wonder, I mean, that seems like a really, really modest estimate for, yeah. you know, a, like you say, a group, you know, and I mean, there's another compounding factor. <clears throat>
4: they purposely stay away from us. Yeah. They don't like human contact. And when you go back to the reasons why, and there's a couple of good reasons. Uh, you can go back. There's all kinds of references in every, most countries around the world that have references to these things. In fact, if you look up the term ogre, every country's got a different version of that name, but it's the same thing, and it's these things.
1: Yeah, like uh, one thing I like studying, looking into is the uh, the idea of the troglodytes exactly. in, in Greek literature, you know.
4: So when you talk to Native peoples here that will actually talk about what they know, and, and a lot of that's subjective. I had a, a gentleman a couple of years back who was a, an elder of the Hyada tribe explain to me about what different Native peoples might tell you about what they know. And it may be direct knowledge— It may be from stories passed down, and those stories might be affected by, again, you know, it depends on if it's the tribe's experience, a group's experience, a family, or an individual's experience with one of these things and their outlook that shaped that particular story. So you're going to get different variations, everything from, you know, the big friendly brother to, and most of them, of course, are, are, they say they're cannibals. Well, they didn't consider them an animal. They considered them a different tribe of people. Right. And, and they were eating people. Yeah. And, of course, you got got to go back to the the ogre stories. What well, was an ogre? They ate people.
1: Yeah. Not Long not t- something t- that was nice, exactly. It
4: not nice. Absolutely not. And a couple of my native uh, pals in southern Oregon told me, they said, well, he kind of, one of the guys kind of chuckled. He says, you know, when our people came to this region... You know, long before there were any kind of records, he said, these things were already here. We drove them out of the feeding areas, the hunting areas. So there was, and if you can go back, you can go back and look at how humans deal with any kind of threat to us.
1: You know, we exterminate threats to us. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the, look at the Indians. When a dog bites
4: somebody, <laughs> we put it down immediately. Yep. I, I mean, if we have nothing else to fight, we fight each other. I, I think we're kind of hardwired for it. And maybe it goes back to, you know, pre-written language in humans where, you know, maybe we had to fight for survival against these things that were, you know, predators on us. There's the book by, uh, I can't think of his first name. Yeah,
1: yeah, you're talking about the uh, us and them, or them and And
4: us. And right. I, I think I get the... Idea that if you were to replace Neanderthal with Sasquatch and get rid of the sexual component, you'd have a pretty good case of what may have happened in the remote past.
1: Yeah. And, and man, you know, you actually, uh, listening to you, you, you were the one that tipped me off on that. And as soon as I looked that up, there are some, some of those pictures. And in fact, I think you were telling someone, you know, let me, every time I, have shown this photo to someone. This is like, this is people who have identical. Yeah. People who have had encounters. They were like, that's it. You know, exactly. Especially just
4: few very minor differences.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nose and iris maybe.
4: Right. And, and I've actually had that changed. Oh really? Oh yeah. I'll send you the picture that was
1: altered. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. Now, Okay. So, um, I'm in Texas I'm from East Texas. I'm actually from Tyler, you know Ginormous pine trees, and it's right. a totally different area, East Texas compared to just the general thinking that people have when I kind of got back into the subject and really started pulling stuff out uh that term booger that right, that very people throughout the south right right, and something that uh even in just talking to my parents and then talking to a couple of uncles that I have that still live way off in the sticks and like it that way. The idea that there is this term boogeyman or booger man
4: makes you wonder where it comes from,
1: doesn't it? Right. It really, it it really spun me back a little bit and made me think about, I wonder when, you know, the Patterson film came out and this term Bigfoot kind of blew up and it became this cultural phenomenon I wonder, uh, you know, to the people in the South who aren't maybe just plugged in or whatever, but they know that there's this term being thrown around. I wonder if it uh, created that idea that, hey, you know, we have those here or when did you start getting in contact with a lot of people in the South in terms of, uh, you know, talking to researchers down here or just people who had encounters or.
4: Well, you know, for a long time. Until really until Renee's death, he he sort of shielded me from a lot of the the Bigfoot community. I mean, he would give me information and, and of course tell me about everything that was going on. But he says you don't want to deal with all these people because a lot of them are crazy. But I learned about a lot of the things through him and Green and, and Timmis and those guys. And then afterwards, um, you know, friends were telling me after Renee passed away, he says they said, "Well, you really need to you need to start writing. You need to step out and uh, and sort of." you know, take on the mantle like they did because only you know a lot of the stuff that they knew. <clears throat> so then I started really, you know, reaching out and, and making contacts around. And um I, I think what I get from the South mostly is that people sort of uh you know, it's just very matter of fact. You know, they grew up learning this. Um, they don't talk about it as outsiders, but it's just it's a recognized part of uh you know, background life. It's they know they're there and And they just, you know, deal with it as as situations crop up, and and that's kind of that.
1: And there you have it, folks, part one of uh, my ongoing conversation with Will
5: Jevning. Much, much more to come from that. Remember to follow us on Twitter at OK Talk Show. You can find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash OK Talk Show. Of course, our website is OKTalk.Podbean.com. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast app, be sure to subscribe, leave us a rating, and leave us a review. It helps us big time.
1: Coming up in our next episode, what's the deal with Galveston, and why the hell is it so haunted?
5: A candle blown out. A dish breaking when no one's around. The sound of a child's laughter. Over its 104 years, Galveston's Hotel Galvez and Spa has collected quite a history and quite a few ghost stories. It's been featured on the Travel Channel and the Discovery Channel, and now you can get a peek at what's behind the door to the infamous room 501.
0: Um, They actually found out her name was Audra. As her, as her fiancé would settle in and out of the port of Galveston, she would stay here in room 501. And when it was time for him to return uh, back to Galveston, she would take the elevator up to the eighth floor. Once you get off the elevator on the eighth floor, she would take a small stairs uh, that led up to the, the west turret. And then she would sit there, you know, shaded from the weather and the sun and everything, and stare out to sea and wait for her, her fiancé's return. Well, there was a mighty storm one day. Uh, the ship went down. She did learn this, and in her despair, she she took the the stairs up that one last time to the eighth floor, to the eighth floor turret, and hung herself. But that's not the saddest part of the story, because a few days later, her fiance did return for his fiance, and you know, unfortunately, there was a wedding that was never to be. She is our long-term ghost who, unfortunately, has not checked out. She is rumored to to walk the walk the halls and has been seen by quite a few.
5: Throughout the month of October, you can spend an evening touring the historic hotel and learning about the Ghost Bride and other odd occurrences.
0: I guess it was about a month ago, uh, we had a gentleman that checked out, I mean, just really, really quickly at 3 o'clock in the morning. He just ran downstairs. He was bawling. Our night audit uh, manager spoke with him. He had a photo and he was saying, he says, I tried to talk to her all day. He said, this is the reason why I came. I tried to talk to her. You know, she wasn't saying anything to me. I couldn't see her. But all of a sudden at 3 o'clock in the morning, he was still trying to talk and all of a sudden, she she, she appeared Now he had a photograph of a hand that was reaching out to her that you know that looked like a lady's hand now, we offered to move to hotels he wanted none of that he just, just wanted,
5: wanted out and then follow it up with a three-course dinner at the galvez bar and grill you can also book an overnight package which includes a deluxe and possibly haunted room of your own following the tour, and a copy of the book haunted galveston so you can keep yourself up all night visit hotelgalvez.com for more
1: ahead and say thanks to everyone for all the kind words about the show. It uh, really means a lot to us. Now look here.
3: I want to tell you about something that happened to me not long ago. You see, what it happened was, was uh, I was standing out in the backyard and uh, having a cold one because see my old lady, she had gotten lippy with me earlier in the day, and I got to tell you, I ain't even trying to be in the same room with her when she get lippy. you know what I mean? So, uh, I had taken my proof, gone out into the backyard, and, uh, we got a little, uh, we got a little fenced-in area back there, but, you know, I like to get outside that fence and get behind, we got this uh shrub bridge get behind them shrubbers and then she can't really see where I am or at least she can't throw nothing directly at my ass and uh so here I is I'm standing out there in the back about sundown come and I mean I tell you right now I'm pissed anyway all of a sudden I hear some kind of commotion off in the tree line and I'm thinking to myself the fuck that commotion and what had happened was was uh was I seeing all this movement through the tree and honestly I thought you know somebody was out there was just acting crazy uh and we got a little uh we got a little grove of tree out there behind our fencing area what I noticed, shortly, I noticed all this motion and commotion, and then a motherfucking rock come in, hit me on my damn toe. And I'm like, who in the hell these kids think they're going to throw a rock at my ass? And I was pissed, right? So, anyway, what I did was, well, I stood there and I was waiting on one of them kids come out and go up and whoop his head. And now I start hearing hear some growling or grunting or whatever. Sound like maybe, maybe it sounded like some kind of hog in some sort of sexual situation. And then it got really, really creepy. Because I seen the branches of this tree... Move back like somebody was peering through them. So, where it was that they was peering through on these branches on this tree? It was about, some eight foot tall. And I know damn sure ain't no NBA players out here living. And uh, I they kept looking in the area there and sure enough, I noticed uh, when, when a tree stabilized, I noticed what looked like a face, but it were all black, not like the Kimbe Mutombo black, but more like uh, Draymond Green black, and uh, just stirring at me. And I'll tell you right this right now. I told you about how pissed off I was with my old lady. I turned my ass back around and went back inside and decided I was going to drink the rest of my brew next to her ass because I didn't want to be out there with whatever that ass was. And that's all that happened. I ain't seen it since.
1: I don't know if you ever listened to the Bigfoot show, but no,
4: Scott. I don't really don't listen to many shows.
1: Scott Harriet um, did this really funny Renee DeHinden impression when he was talking about some troll, uh, Cob- Eric Beckyard.
4: Beckyard, oh my God. <laughs> you know what Renee did to me one time? This was when Beckyard was active. He got to where he Beckyard would bug everybody in the Bigfoot community.
2: Yeah, I heard.
4: Um, Renee, he wouldn't. He wouldn't write to Renee. Renee liked to keep, he was, I used to tease Renee about being like the CIA. He was the DIA, you know, because he knew everything that was going on. And so Bechtard wouldn't write him anymore because Renee was so acidic toward him. So what Renee wanted to keep tabs on him. So he got him to write to me. And then he would get the letters from me. I said, God damn it, Renee, this guy's insane. I don't want it. no more letters from him. <laughs> and he laughed. He said, Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to write him no
1: more. Yeah, Harriet does this thing where, and I've heard him do it twice. And there, you know, they, uh, the guy who was doing that show, he stopped it. But uh, he, where he was talking about how Beckyard was out in the field with him or whatever at something, and he was like doing his Renee to hit the depression and he's like, here I am this guy he comes up and fucking Eric Beckyard he shows up in a goddamn fur coat and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> here I had a chance to rid the world of this son of a bitch, and I didn't take it
4: <laughs> Well you know you know Renee and, and when the interviews, you don't realize what a what a filthy mouth he had. I don't know where he learned English, but he was mostly swear words. <laughs> we were sitting around talking one time back in the 80s and he says, and he, he would say. He said this without realizing what he was saying. He says something that he says. He says something about I, I, I shouldn't. I should, really should watch my language. He says I, I say all these goddamn things around these little kids. You know, I don't want to have, have <laughs> little bastards. You know, pick up on what I'm saying or something. Like, <laughs> you know, every other word was a swear word with Renee.
1: You know? Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, listen. um... I, I I had a I really appreciate you um, taking the time. I know. Oh no problem. Um, to me, you're somebody. To you, I'm I'm not really anybody. I really enjoyed meeting you. Number one, this is one of the things that I really wanted to do. Again, like I said, I all the respect to the William Jevney I'm I'm a big fan.
4: Well, I sure appreciate that.